Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. Hello and welcome to the Forest Educator Spotlight on program valuation. Like how do we price our programs that are nature-based, forest education, wilderness skills, outdoor rec, whatever you have, how do we come up with and determine our value to our customers? And this is part of my forest entrepreneur series that I'm doing, which is a mini series inside of these forest spotlights. And I'm just going to give fair warning for this program episode, I should say. I'm going to give you fair warning about this episode because it is going to dig into a lot of details that are a little bit business oriented. So if you're like listening and you're thinking, oh, Ricardo's going to have all these really fun stories about sitting under a pine tree or whatever, probably not going to be that kind of episode. However, this does have an, a tremendous impact on the overall field, the overall profession of all of us out out here in the world trying to teach and lead people to nature in a meaningful way and also make a living, also be able to go on vacation or pay our mortgage or not get divorced or whatever it is that we're trying to do. So this is a pretty important topic. And I'm hoping that I'm going to put a little parameter around this. And that is everything that I'm going to be discussing here is being discussed and presented in today's world. In other words, we're living in, for the most part, a capitalistic current modern system. In other words, I'm not referring to, hey, back 500 years ago when we all bartered and I gave you acorns and you gave me deer hides and that we're not going to be talking about that. And we're not going to be talking about in the future when all our needs are met and then money has no value and therefore blah, blah, blah. Like we're going to be very practically minded in this uh, episode. So that's where I'm coming from. And I'm coming from a perspective here that is hey, I have these skills and these, this training and this ability to help people. How could I do that in a way that leads to long-term business sustainability, long-term mission fulfillment, long-term supporting lots of people in my community and parents and families or whatever it is, it's aimed to support us in the long run. And it's also an episode where we're going to be talking a little bit about what should the value, what is the current value for a lot of these programs and what should the value be on a professional basis and how, how do we help ourselves get there in a way that will be something that we would then go, hey, these are goals we're going to move towards and begin adapting what we do and moving forward so that we can we can actually be taken seriously. It's hard to take seriously someone who says, hey, I'm a forest educator, when they're also running a chainsaw business and they're also being working in construction and then also they're moonlighting as a bartender at night. Like you're, It's difficult if you're only running one program every six months. to you, you still are a forest educator, absolutely, and we love you. But the point is that it's very difficult to sometimes sustain that profession if it's part of a whole mix of jack of all trades. However, as someone who's done that historically, I can say that, hey, we all do what we have to do to survive and there's nothing wrong with that. But we're gonna be trying to define this as I wanna be able to make a living or a good part of my living doing this work. I've already talked to and covered some things about this in my other two forest educator episodes, forest entrepreneur episodes, sorry. I've already done that. I've covered valuation. I've covered a lot of concepts. If I repeat anything, I apologize. I know that sometimes there are stories that I have or 
examples that I might give that will be repetitive. And I apologize for that in advance if I do that. There's a good chance I will. Uh, anyway, <laughs> let's dive right in, okay? So, you know, when we look at how do we value our program, there's two different perceptions of this. Three, really. There's three main perceptions or perspectives. There's the question of how much do we value, we as the educator, how, do we, how much do we value what we do and the services we provide and the experiences we create and deliver? And then there's also the perspective of your customer, your student, your camper, your parents. And then they, get a, they have a perspective of here's how much I paid for this and here's what I got. And then on the other side, the third perspective is what is the perceived value from other organizations, other institutions, other businesses? So how do they see us as fellow people who deliver good content to experiences for people in our communities? And it, those three things all are very dynamic and they, are, they do have a direct impact on what we can charge, what we should charge or might charge, and how many customers we get and everything else. So these are all factors that we're going to be discussing. So let's just go into, I'm going to give you a little bit of history for myself, and that will illustrate a little bit more about this valuation piece. So for me, I started a lot of my wilderness skills by reading. So how much did it cost me? Really almost nothing. I got books into, I have a library, and I would read about Native Americans, I would read about mountain men, I would read about lots and lots of kids' stories about historical pioneers and early settlers and Native people at the time of founding of America. There was a lot, there's a lot of stories that I read. This is, of course, like 35, 40 years ago, more or more, 50 years ago. And I would read those stories, and those are things that really inspired me. And then I would go out and buy fishing gear and try to fish, or I would go out and try to do the things. I bought like a little tiny hatchet and I would try to build a cabin and I would have limited success. Of course, I was like 12. So I was just trying to figure it out. And I grew up with a, a pretty much a solid working class background. My mother was a court stenographer for a while. She also was a waitress for a, a long time. And then she did other things that helped us get by. My, my father wasn't really in the picture, but my stepfather was a dairy farm laborer and also was, would work at woodworking and other positions. But money was very tight. So I really wasn't in a situation where I was like going to camps or unless it was like provided by the schools that we worked with that, that I was going to generally the the economic opportunities to go do those things were more more on the limited side. I wouldn't say it was out of the question entirely because we had grandparents and stuff like that could help out. But for the most part, it was a little bit tight. And so what happens when you grow up in that environment is that you just assume that whatever it is you're thinking you might do, probably we can't afford it. And you also grow up going, hey, this is just how life is. You just, a lot of people can't afford those things. And that creates a pattern that oftentimes is difficult to break L later on in life or as you go through life, you find yourself continually reacting or uh, making decisions or seeing the world through that lens, which is creates a kind of a, a number of blind spots where you just don't even see that there are other possibilities. And I know that's true for myself. And I'm not saying this to complain. I'm just saying that this is where it is which on the other side of it, I know I had people, friends of mine in high school who just assumed that they were going to go to Columbia University and that their parents would pay for it and they would figure it out and assumed that, hey, some of my friends were like, hey, I'm going to get a car when I turn 18 or whatever, which is fine. And they had a different experience. And when you're in one side of it, you don't really understand the other. Like I have friends that would come over to my house and then be like, oh, we're doing chores. What are these chores you're talking about? 
And I'd go out and split wood and we'd bring wood in for the fire and stuff. And they'd just be like, this is awesome. And I would be like, yeah, try doing it every single day. <laughs> but they would just go, whoa, I can see what's going on here. This is, I've read about people like you or whatever. They didn't say that. But the point is that when we come from the, whatever background we have, it does create a certain lens that is oftentimes difficult to switch. So I, I grew up getting inspired by these things, but really didn't have the means to go take classes. And guess what? There really were no classes in wilderness survival, nature education, any of that uh, for the most part. There were environmental ed centers and there were people that had summer camps and I wasn't, I didn't even know they really existed in a lot of ways. Now, fast forward to me finding Tom Brown's books in a bookstore in Tower Books in Sacramento. I found his books in the Carlos Castaneda sort of section and found uh, Tom Brown's books. A few of those, there was only like two or three at the time. And I bought those right before I went out on a six-month trail crew, you know, uh, with the California Conservation Corps doing backcountry trails all over northern and northern and southern California. We were, we went everywhere. As I traveled, I would read these books. I had a bunch of Castaneda books and I had a bunch of Tom Brown's books and I would read those. And one of them was a field guide and I would just practice as many skills as I could trying to recreate that. Although we were in like national parks and national forests, so I couldn't do a lot of things that I wanted to do because it's a violation of park rules and I was working next to park rangers all day long. But the interesting thing was that I, I really was studying these from the book and getting a tremendous amount of value from that. And as I did that, I was learning a lot and I, had, I was growing in the number of questions I had. And at the end of some of his books, at the last page, it said, oh, Tom Brown has a school in New Jersey. And when I got out of the mountains, I sent my money in and said, hey, I'm interested in, this, in taking one of your classes. And I signed up for a course. And I, at that time, I had to fly out to New Jersey from California. And the CCC, you only get paid like three thirty-five an hour. So it was rough. But the People Express had $99 round trip flights from Sacramento to Newark or wherever. And I figured it out. And at that time, Tom's programs were about $450, something like that. This is like in 1984. I'm at that time when I got to that class and Tom just started showing us bow drill, coal burning, cordage, building shelters, animal tracking, making bows and arrows, like all of this stuff that was that we actually did, not just the stuff that he gave us for theory, but all of those skills. At that time, I would have paid triple for that class at those rates at $335 an hour for whatever. I would have paid like $1,200 easily for that because there was no other place that I knew where I could get those skills. And I really was motivated. I'd been reading. I'd been reading my whole life about this world that people lived in prior to my modern times. In my experience in today's world, and I knew that everybody lived there, but I never knew how they did it, and I could not figure out exactly what it was all about. And by going there, it was a really eye-opening experience, and it just got me really pumped up about it. The value for me for Tom's courses was incredibly high, and like I said, I would have paid a lot more. And just remember, I'm a, Tom's market was very small back then. My class had 20 people in it. And his and it then it began to grow in popularity as Tom began publishing book after book, one every couple of years. And he eventually his classes grew to be like a hundred people, 120 people in a class, which seems insane, trying to learn tracking with that many people all cruising around the woods. But people at that time also his his price began to go up because as his popularity grew up, uh, grew. He was his the value of what he was offering and the number of people that wanted to come who would pay that amount, take a whole week off, fly out to wherever it is, it was very high. 
And so Tom's value for his programs was high because he was famous, he delivered a lot of value and skills, and people wanted to actually spend time with him because they'd read the, read the books. Now, I know a lot of other programs and people in today's world right now that I would say would deliver an incredible, probably more value in terms of just sheer uniqueness of skills and all of those other skills that Tom taught at a lower price than what Tom charged back then. So things have changed in today's world. But Tom's value was really determined by that. Now, I knew other people that did teach occasionally, and many times they would be someone who was like making buckskin, and they'd be like, hey, you can come over to my house and just hang out and help me stack firewood and do some things around, and I'll show you how to do buckskin. So it was not so much a monetary thing that I would have to deliver or give, but it would be more of, hey, I want to get to know you. I want to show you exactly how to do it. And was this person was not making a living teaching these skills. So this person had another job and they would just go, hey, come over this weekend. I'm going to work on hides. Or whatever it was, tracking, flint napping, whatever. So sometimes people will offer classes just because they have a full-time job, but they just like hanging out with other people. And so they'll just throw it out there and go, eh, give me a hundred bucks, come over to my house, bring your own food. We're going to mess around. And that's a really cool thing, but it is subsidized by the person and their full-time job. Or sometimes it's the spouse and the spouse's full-time job and the other person is doing it part-time and trying to contribute to the commute, to the kind of family pot of income, but it's probably never going to match whoever it is nursing, nursing salary or teacher salary or whatever it is, business that they're running or whatever. When I looked at that, and as I've been doing these skills for this long and started running my own programs, I have been aware of these, the factor of what do these things cost and how long are they and how many people do they serve? And it pretty much always goes into the back of my mind. Like when I'm scrolling through Instagram or Facebook or similar uh, social media, I'm always looking and seeing, oh, look, there's a person teaching a basket class and they have nine people. And probably eight to 10 people is probably the max you really want to have in a basket class if you're actually making something that's really um, a beautiful handwork and you're wanting to make sure you deliver it. You really can't have 120 people in that class. It'll be in, insane. But I would look and see somebody teaching tracking or someone teaching a skill, something. And I would always have my mind skim through how many people are there, who's an instructor, who's the, ins the instructor's family. And I pretty much always look and see what are the facilities that they seem to be providing. Are they going to a lodge somewhere and paying that lodge money to cater the event and provide housing? Are they doing it in their backyard? Are they doing it at a park? Where, what is going on for their facilities? What are the materials and what does the environment look like in terms of, I don't want to say, uh, sometimes it's just like folding chairs and it's just real uh, modest. And then other times it's like a really nicely uh, laid out and invested situation. Like, in other words, there's a pavilion and there's really nice tables or whatever. Like it, And no, there's no judgment on this. I'm not judging anyone. I just like to factor in when I then look at their website and see what their price is for that program, then I make a guess. I'm, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, I bet it's going to be about 200 bucks for, for the day or, or it's going to be $500 for the weekend or $1,000 for a weekend or whatever it is. And I start to make a guess. And then I look at the website and I see it and I go, oh, wow, they're doing it much cheaper than that. And then that's when I ask is, does this person have a spouse that's subsidizing their work? Or I will think, do they have, maybe they have a trust fund or maybe they are retired. Maybe the people are older and they worked really hard and made their money. And now they're just offering these classes and trying to keep it really affordable. And sometimes they're actually sponsored by, they got a grant or whatever. And usually that is something that's on their website because grants like to be acknowledged as well. So sometimes those classes are like, hey, this nature program is sponsored by the 
the Madrone Audubon Society or something. And so it's like actually underwritten by this program that wants to deliver these programs and raise consciousness or just provide that as a, as value for their constituents. Cause a lot of people just give and donate to them and it's a way of giving back and completing the circle and training new young naturalists and everything else. So that's what goes through my mind. And there's no, again, no judgment. I'm not looking at that and going, Oh, what year is their truck? And like, I don't, I'm not consciously really doing it. I'm mostly just seeing, yeah, hey, this is a really interesting thing and it helps me to understand their value. The, the second thing that happens a lot when I look at Instagram is I'll see people running programs and I also think, where are they located? Now, Instagram is horrible for people when you go to their page and they give you so little room at the top of that Instagram thing where it just says the name of the person, their handle. And then it just says, oh, we do forest school. And almost no forest schools or wilderness people, they don't put where they are. <laughs> so they'll just go, we're the crow and raven school in, and we teach nature, blah, blah, blah. And I always go like, where are they? Where are you? And that's, I have to dig for it. Please, for the love of God, please put in your profile where you're located so people can find you. And that way they know, hey, it's this is right down the road for me, or this is in my state or wherever. It would really be helpful. But when I look at these Instagram pieces, and some people will tag like where they're located because they'll be like, oh, we're doing a tracking workshop in Cornwall, or we're doing a tracking program in Montana or whatever. And that's really helpful. But it's, it really matters where your location is. Those are two other factors. Where are you located and what is the economic situation in that area? And where are your clients coming from? For example, you could be living in a very modest northern Vermont county that's not real wealthy, but if the bulk of your students are from Manhattan and work as corporate lawyers and they come up and they want to get their tomahawk on and cook some bacon over the fire or whatever, then that program's income level could be very high even though the surrounding area in that place is very low or modest, I should say. I'm not saying it's low. There's no place that's really low anymore in this country, it seems like, in terms of like home values and everything else. But there's a, the factor that I'm talking about here is what is that economy like? Is it a growing economy or a strong economy where a lot of the money is staying within the community? And it used to be before the big box stores, that you would go to the hardware store and then the hardware store was something, somebody owned that locally. And that person who owned it locally would take, his kids would be going to school. He, that person, he or she would be spending money, buying a truck in there. They would be going out and getting groceries and they would buy things from other nurseries to stock their store and whatever. And the money would stay in the community and circulate two or three times, which then meant that other businesses would get that cash flow also. So it had a multiplying effect, right? And now, like in our county, in, in upstate New York, we have Walmart. We, have, we don't have a lot of big box stores and stuff, but there are a few. But Walmart just pour, pulls tons of money out of three county, the three-county region and it just ships the bulk of that profit to Bentonville, Arkansas, where the Walmart headquarters is. And that money does not stay and circulate. So the profit of that does not stay. Yes, people go and they buy and they get, you know, they spend money and there are people that work there for fairly low salaries. So Walmart isn't a real economic driver. It does bring people in but there's not really a lot of money that's being, for the amount of, of sales that they have, that money is not circulating. And that's true for a lot of businesses. It's not always true for franchises. Like some, if somebody has a Subway or they have a Taco Bell or they have a, again, a hardware store like Ace or whatever that's a franchise, then a lot of times that money does still stay in the community and that's really helpful. So 
I'm just laying out the groundwork on economic models. So in other words, if you're in an area where there just isn't a lot of extra cash coming in, there isn't a factory or there isn't a microchip or a nanotech thing or something where outside money is coming in and being invested and spent and there's it's flush with cash, it becomes something where you're in more of a service-oriented situation. So in those areas, it's money can usually be pretty tight, in which case people are not spending uh, a lot of money on yoga or nails, getting your nails done or getting their hair done every week or whatever it is that people would spend a lot of money that if you go to another area where there is a lot of money flowing, people are doing those things. People are going out to eat, they're traveling, they're doing a bunch of different things in those wealthier places where there's just a flow of cash. So right now, because a lot of that money is being pulled out of our economy in, in many of those areas, it's it's something where it's much scarcer. And we all get this, I think, and understand that. So where you're located really matters in terms of who you serve and what those people can afford based on what the economy is in the area. Now, that doesn't mean that our program should be valued less in a way, but there's a certain amount that the market, what will the market bear? Like how many people can you actually get to take a program based on based on what cash flow they have, what income they have? So there might be a ton of people that want to come to your program, but they can't afford it, then they can't afford it. And it doesn't really matter. So those are big factors. So where you're located really matters. And then the other element is who are you serving and what is the messaging around what do you serve? Who do you serve and what you deliver? That's what I meant to say. So it's like thinking about it from the standpoint of do you understand when your customers come to you, why they're coming to you and what is it that you're actually doing for them? And you probably will think, oh yeah, they're coming to my survival program because they want to learn about survival or they want to learn about tracking or they want to learn about tanning hides or whatever it might be, basket making or gardening, or they want to learn about rock climbing or whatever it is. And yes, that is what you did. But there's another element, which is like, what is the need and what is the value of why it's important to them? So typically, when you have a product or service and you're trying to price it out, you have to look at what value are you delivering for your customers? And this sort of, I'm going to dive into some of these things here. There's a whole element around this of do you know who you serve, A, and B, what is why do they come to you? And I would be willing to bet that probably a high percentage, probably more than 50% of people who are forest educators are probably sitting here right now and thinking, I don't know what he's talking about, and I do not know what value I deliver. I just do my thing, man. That's I've had this conversation, and <laughs> I remember somebody just going, like, hey, man, I make bows and arrows, man. That's what I do, okay? It's not that big of a deal or whatever. And I'm just like, okay, that's fine. But he was the one talking to me about how he couldn't make any money and he was selling his bows for like 100 bucks. <laughs> and he would say, I can't pay rent and my kid needs new shoes and I, my car needs a new muffler and I've been living in a moldy yurt behind my, my aunt's house for free and I need to get a new yurt because it's 30 years old. Like he's going through this whole litany of all this stuff. And I'm just like, dude, who's, who is buying your bows? And the reality is the people that were buying his bows were people that were from like Boston who were in the software business. And they were really into this hobby of learning about native hunting styles and they could easily afford, like they would go out and spend $900 on a compound bow and not even blink. And yet this guy's selling his handmade, hand-carved, like Osage Orange, Hickory, whatever, you bows for $175. And I'm just going, dude, what are you doing, man? You're killing yourself. That is not good. And, and then he would just argue and argue with me. So anyway, the point is, this is really important. You have to know who, you're, who are your customers and 
What is their perception of the value? What do you deliver or what do they think that you deliver? It's weird because you do get into a kind of a mythical thing going. For example, in today's world, most people who drive big SUVs, oftentimes they're attracted to the SUV because they see that SUV and they go, oh, look, the Chevy Tahoe will take me through these canyons. So if I ever need to go through these canyons every day, I would be able to put it in four wheel low and go up this mountain or whatever it is. Uh, but the reality is that they're literally driving through for two hours a day. They're driving from Sacramento down to San Francisco to commute to work because San Francisco is so expensive. And that SUV isn't doing any of that. And it hasn't ever, it's barely ever gone off the pavement. And the person that buys that SUV has a perceived value in that they could be more mountainous. They could be more rugged if they wanted to. So it gives them in their mind the option of being able to make it or whatever, fill in the blank. Like they could get out of the city if they needed to because they have this rugged view, whatever. The reality is if you really want to get out and things are really bad, you probably need a horse. So good luck. But the point is that, that it's what they feel, not necessarily what's true. So they're going to, they're going to go and get 10, 10 miles per gallon of gas for whatever, for 10 years with this vehicle and pay a ton of money because of that desire to be whatever out there in the wilderness or whatever. So that's one area, but then there's a, like a practical level, which is when we do our programs, especially when we're working with children, there's this idea of how are we serving them? How are we serving a family? How are we serving these kids? And the idea is how can you uh, quantify a little bit about what we do for our clients and how is that, how is that valued? So if you think about, for example, going into, if you, if your program is a nature pro based program and you're going into a school and you're delivering uh, programs for fifth graders, getting them really excited about social studies. And you're going to be doing, I don't know, some pioneering skills and outdoor cooking and whatever. And you're going to bring history to life for them in a way that's hands-on and helps them to get really get excited and motivated to be in, in this person's class. Now, now that has a lot of value for that teacher and subsequently the school. Because if they can then say, hey, this isn't really too risky of a program, it's not going to put us at risk, but by doing this program, this could bump up our test scores half a percent because some of these children are actually paying attention. They're actually excited about what we're doing. Or maybe it's even more than that. So in other words, their level of investiture based on their budget, which is in the millions of dollars, how much should we put in for in-school field trips or guest speakers or guest demonstrators or whatever it is because they're, they understand that there's a value to that. Now, most of the time, if you're an educator, you're just so happy. You're just like, what? Someone wants me and they want me to do something? Yay. And you just go, all right, I'll, I don't know. They go, how much do you charge? And they're like, I, I don't know, 500 bucks. And they're like, done. And they're like, damn it. I should have probably asked for more than that. In other words, people will oftentimes give an answer just to fish it and throw it out there. That is a bad idea. If somebody ever asks you, this is really important. If someone asks you, hey, how much would it be for you to do blank? And it's a program that you don't run all the time. You are not sure what the costs are. And you're also not sure what the value of it is. Please do not just say yes and just throw out a number. Do your homework. It's perfectly normal to say, hey, why don't you tell me a little more about what do you need? How many kids? What would it be? How many people? Where would it be located? All of those things. And then I will work up a price and send you a proposal. That is what, that's the right answer. If you just throw something out, it's, it's really, you're hurting yourself most of the time. And sometimes you work up a proposal and it's too expensive. And then they get, come back and go, Hey, we were thinking of paying you 
a quarter of that. And then I can say, yeah, okay, hey, good luck. I'm sure you can find somebody who probably will work for less, but I'm not that person. But the point is, you want to do market research if it's something where you're being asked to do something outside of what you're currently offering. And even for the, what you're currently offering, you want to look at all these different angles of who, who has, where's the value coming from and who to whom. So for example, like tracking. Being an animal tracker is probably pretty valuable if you're a field biologist studying whatever, wolverines or badgers or whatever it is out there in the bush, and you need to find badgers so you can study them, and you're part of this, you got a fellowship or a grant to do this work to fund this study for the university or whatever, then you have to have those. So that's, tracking is important for you. If you're a hunter, and many times when hunters like bow hunters, they shoot a deer with an arrow, and then the deer doesn't die immediately, instantly. Sometimes it dies in about 10 or 15 minutes, and sometimes it can run for a bit, and then it stops and goes. It's very quick. But the point is, a lot of hunters will lose the deer because they don't have tracking skills to find the deer. They sometimes will see blood drips or whatever. But the fact is that if you're a bow hunter or any hunter, being a good tracker, if you're someone that isn't really a big outdoorsman, there is a value to that because you don't want to spend $1,000 on all your gear or $2,000 on whatever and you're spending the money in a hotel or you're staying at a lodge and you've got your license fees and all the stuff. And then to go out there and get one shot at a deer and then you shoot it and then it runs away and you can't find it. It just feels like a waste, right? And you're already spending all that. You might as well spend another whatever, 500 bucks and take a class. So the point is that to those two people, tracking has a, a real value. Honestly, tracking for law enforcement is not as big of a thing as it probably should be, but tracking is really important. That's what crime scene investigation is in a lot of ways. And it is, but tracking in that context would be really important because the safety of our community might be at stake or, or other, the stakes are high. So you want to value that and make sure that those things are really compensated because if you're teaching at that level, it really matters what you're teaching. If you're just going for a walk and saying, Hey, those are raccoon tracks. Hey, that's a deer track. Hey, there's this. And you're just with a bunch of lay people who just want to know what's in their backyard. The stakes are pretty low. You could misinterpret skunk tracks for raccoons. And guess what? No one's going to die. No one's going to lose a deer. No one's going to lose their fellowship or whatever it is. There's no stakes there individually. Because most of those kids are like, uh, okay, is that a house cat? Okay. And they're just going to move on. But they're gonna, it's cool because they're getting more in tune with nature and they're paying attention. But the stakes are still fairly low. So... In other words, when you look at tracking, there's that element of who has the need for that what do you, and what are you giving them? And probably for most people, it's more of a hobby to come out and they just are really excited to learn about it. And it is an ancient art and it's an incredible experience. Once you actually have done it, it's really awesome and it can be addicting. If you get the the fever, so to speak, then you then go, oh, yeah, I'm going to take this class or I'm going to take this track and sign certification weekend and learn a lot more or whatever. So when you think about what you deliver in terms of value, you have to think about it with a lot of different perspectives. It's not enough to just go, hey, I teach blank and people give me money to teach them blank. And when someone says, who are your customers? You go, anybody, anyone. And that is not the case, okay? That is not helpful. It, it basically just tells you, you haven't really thought about it or paid attention to what's going on. And there's probably good reason for that. You're probably working five jobs and you're trying to figure out what you're doing. And that's 100% fine. But you're probably leaving a lot of money on the table and you're probably going to struggle because you don't really know where do I put my advertising dollars? Where do I get out there and make myself known? Where do my customers come from? Like when that money trail, when those people signing up, if that starts to dry up, now you have a problem and then you won't even know where to fix it and how to fix it or what to even, how to even approach it. 
It would be like me with a diesel engine. I have no idea what to do if somebody said, hey, my tractor stopped. And I would just go, all right, I don't know, get a shovel and we'll dig a hole and bury it. I don't know, I don't know anything about diesel engines, but I, so I wouldn't even know heads or tails. I know where the engine is, but I could, that's about it. I would just look at it. And I guess my next go-to thing would be to go, hey, let me YouTube uh, fixing a diesel engine. <laughs> and that would be a long, painful process. But here's the thing about valuation is that you, it's not that hard to begin this process. And once you start, you can make headway and you can start to get a feel and it helps to ask questions, ask questions. Hey, what do you guys think is the, your favorite thing about being out here on my dog sled expedition? What are you all taking away? Send out evaluations, ask people for their, what did they like most? What were the low points? What was something unexpected that they weren't sure? What is it that they're going to bring home with them? So it in six months from now, how is this, is, does this trip still have an impact on your life? And when you do that, yeah, you might not get that many responses right away, but you can, depending on how you ask, when you ask, you, you will start to get a picture from your customers, why they're there. And it, probably will surprise you. I'm not really sure how else to say that, except that there's a very good chance that you're, you don't quite get it. And that's normal because most of us don't ask those questions. We're just so busy trying to deliver the good thing. We don't always have time to think about it. It's like how a lot of times you run like a big program and you don't have any pictures of yourself and you don't have pictures of like stuff that's going on because you're teaching the class. So you don't yet have the time to stop and take a picture or set up a tripod or do any of that. That's where you go, all right, maybe I should get some of my friends to come in and do some video, do some things and do that five or six times a year for just a day or two days on one of my trips so that I get pictures of me doing stuff. Ideally, not somebody who's just your friend who is going to have a picture of you in front of a big blue tarp or something that's in the way. I, I remember doing that when I was really just starting out and we had just gotten our very first Olympus uh, digital camera. And man, I had about a thousand pictures and every single one of them had a picture of like me in front of something that was just real. I could not use that picture because it was like plastic and just stuff around. It, it wasn't like our place was terrible, but it just every single time if that person had just taken a half step in either direction and taken the picture, it would have been great. But that's how it is sometimes. It takes time to learn that. So if you can, find somebody who's actually pretty good at it because those will really pay off for you. And anyway, the point I'm getting with this is that if you have a customer base and you're running programs, just start asking your people questions like that. Don't make it creepy and don't just start asking thousands of Make, don't make 50 posts about it or whatever, but just it's not a bad thing to do that. And if you have people that you know that really like your stuff, give them a call. Send them an email and say, hey, can I give you a call about something? I want to ask you about one of my programs for a minute. Most of the time they'll say, sure, uh, let's talk next Thursday or whatever. And you go, great. And you make your time, make sure you really, um, you know, tell them, hey, it'll be about half an hour. And then just make a list of questions that you'd like to know and really give them time to answer. I'm going to give you one, one piece of advice too that I got. I actually paid somebody as a, who's a, uh, a coach and a, and a trainer a, a lot of money to do to learn some of this. And one of the things she said was, if you ask somebody a question, you have to ask it at least twice and preferably three times and asking it in slightly different ways. If you just say, what's your favorite meal at, at our weekend retreat? They'll just often say, oh, the uh, lasagna on Saturday night. And, or if you say, what was your favorite thing on the weekend? And they go, oh, we all built the shelter. So then you want to ask why, like what particular thing was it about the shelter that really stood out for you? In other words, invite them to go deeper. And most of the time people will just give you a quick answer to then just move on. Because they're just not sure that you would want to know those more intimate or more deeper questions. So you have to ask that question a second time and invite that a little deeper. 
And then when they do that, it's okay to then go, hey, wow, I really didn't even realize this. That's really profound. And tell me a little bit more. Invite them to go a, even a little further with this because now you're, you're jogging their memory a little bit and suddenly they're going to have really good insights that get to their unconscious reasons of why they take your program, which are, which is really powerful. Because obviously there's like the conscious reason, which is I'm learning about wilderness survival in case the world ends or something like that. And I'm really afraid or whatever. And then there's an unconscious reason, which is I'm, I feel lonely and I don't ever get to work in a team and building the shelter with a whole team of people that I've never met before and having us laugh and grab leaves together and get sticks and feel really positive. I don't have anything like that in my life right now at all. And I live in a condo and I work at, as an accountant and I don't have anything like that. And it was, it really hit me that I'm not living as part of a community. I feel like I'm really living a strange, isolated life. And so your class provided something really powerful for me. So that is like gold to understand that. And you want to get 10 or 12 really good conversations like that. And you want, if you can record that session, please do it on zoom, hit record and do it because when you just see or listen to it, if you're just listening to a conversation, you will miss stuff. I swear I did not believe that my, I recorded my conversations and my uh, coach was like, yeah, you got to record it. You got to record it. And then I was like, okay. And then she was like, tell me what you learned. And I, I said, okay. And she said, did you actually listen to the thing over again? I'm like, no. So she made me listen to every uh, interview I did and survey. And then on the other side of it, I was like, holy cow, I learned so much from that that just from listening to them again, and I got like another 10 pages of notes. And then, so then she's, so now what did you learn? And I'm like, I don't even know. I just have so much data, but I'm starting to see a picture that starts to emerge of what I thought I was doing is not what I was doing. Yes, it is. Cause I'm still going to teach those things the way I teach them. But suddenly I'm realizing that the reason they're coming is something different than what I thought they were. And I now have new ideas for marketing my programs. And I saw my enrollment go up by 60% in my classes because I suddenly understood what was going on. So please dive into that if you can. Just so everybody knows, if you're still actually listening to this, number one, congratulations, you're awesome. And number two, I am going to, if you go to my website, and click on sign up to be part of the forest educator newsletter community, whatever it is, click on that and, and get that because I will be sending out a, a link to my page where I'm going to have a program valuation, like the notes I have and a little bit of a process of how to do it. So you could then just look at what your program is currently priced at and then look at, it's going to tell you a little bit and help you on how to do that. So just go to my website, foresteducator.com, jump on that and sign up for that. And I will send that to you. Okay. So another element that I'm going to tell you about is something that you may have heard before, but if your programs are aimed at professionals or, and people who have more money than you, this, which is pretty much almost everybody for me, because I'm working class and I value my programs in a different way. My value, you know, what I do and how I put price things, oftentimes I don't real I never realized when I was running my camps that the people who were signing and sending their kids to the camp were making, I don't know, at least two or three hundred thousand dollars a year for many of them, for the the head of the family, whoever was running things in that regard. And that was, so for them, there are people who will say, oh, your program's $1,200 for a week. Yeah, that's too cheap. I, I feel like they're going to be cutting corners because they're trying to save money. So I'd rather send somebody to a program that is $2,000 because I really want to make sure my kids the most precious thing to me. I want to make sure that camp has all the resources they need so that the director isn't exhausted. The director's not moonlighting as a bartender on Saturday nights or whatever, and that they can afford to have really good staff and the facilities are going to be great. And there's not going to be a Wolverine chewing on their big toe at night and the food's going to be excellent and all that. So 
those people would rather pay more. And so if you're doing a program where it's catered to people that are coming from outside of your media area and they're coming in and they, your program can look cheap to them. Like for example, if you said, Hey, I'm going to go, I'm going to take somebody on a date and you went, Hey, I'm going to go to this cafe and everything's like $5. Well, on one hand, you'll be like, oh my God, five, $5, did I step back in time? But on the other side of it, you might go, yeah, like I'm pretty sure that filet mignon is going to be not that good, or it's going to be the size of a quarter. So you just go, yeah, maybe we'll go to the actual restaurant and we'll go where it's, you get locked in as to what other comparable things are. You know, and I realized that because when I was looking at talking with my students, some of my teen students at my summer camp would tell me, oh, what school do you go to? And they're like, oh, I go to this school in Baltimore. And they're like, oh, I go to this school in Massachusetts. And oh, I go to this school. And I started to go, huh. I looked up those schools when they when the internet showed up and I could actually research this. I went and looked up what their schools were. And some of those schools, they were paying $40,000 for that kid to go to ninth grade. So that person is not going to flinch at if I raise my price to $1,800 or whatever my price is for that week. And those were my customers of people that value and get what we do. They understand why we're doing it and they don't mind giving and giving us some of the money so that they could have their kids have a really powerful experience. So on the other side of it, some people, if it's too cheap, people will equate that it's not that good. On the other side of it, if it's too expensive, then no one's going to buy, right? If when it's too high, because all of a sudden there's just way less people showing up. And so you want to be in a place where you're at the top level of your value while it still is a good value. So you don't want it to, you can charge $10,000 for a week at camp, but then you're really going to be hoping that some celebrities having a kid are going to maybe then turn around and money's not an object at all. And in some cases, you don't necessarily really want to deal with some of those people because they can be really stra- picky about certain things. Having it work out to where you feel good about what you charge, you really have to understand what your costs are. You Ideally, you want to charge, look at what are the costs for your program, and then what is the profit margin? And you need to say roughly, it should be between 40 and 50%. That's where the sweet spot is. If you're below 40% profit margin, you're probably not going to make it. and Or you're going to struggle for a very long time. And when you look at your business, whatever that is, you have to think of your accounting. You have to think of your internet costs. You have to think about everything you do that, whether it's like, oh, I'm going to buy a new phone every three years so I can get a better camera so I can then take better video and then post it on social media or whatever it is. Everything that is part of your business has to really go into what are the costs for what you do. And then you add those up, you add up that, and then you look at, okay, now I'm going to just tack on 40% of that to that. And that will give you your price that you need to make. And then you're going to divide that by the number of people who are coming to your programs at this particular point or whatever, however many students you think you need, and then you set your price and you then try to fill those positions. And that it's a, it's everything is tied in with the perception of your value of the value. And then your understanding of why they're coming to you and your understanding of what they can afford and so forth. A lot of programs that are out there that are subsidized by an organization, by a larger foundation or whatever, those programs oftentimes will go into a community that is underserved and they'll say, hey, we're going to make this at very low cost. It's $20 to register your kids set up for camp or whatever for the day, for the week or whatever. And that experience is awesome for those kids, but it's underwritten. So you can't really judge your program based on the fact that they have a hundred kids at a subsidized program and you have 20 kids at your, at your rate, whatever that is. So you have to look at compare, you have to compare apples to apples, not apples to oranges. So that would be an orange if they're subsidized or grant driven or whatever. 
The other element you want to look at is how much training do you have versus the training at the other programs? Do they have somebody that really knows and is really dialed in? The other elements are who are you working with? So for example, if you're working with students with special needs and they, the, they're autistic or neurodivergent or whatever it is, you can be working with those people and you can usually charge more because it takes more training, a more specialized approach. You usually don't want to have as many children, but in order for you to make it, you, your costs as a professional to live and do this and get ongoing training and everything else is all factored in. And therefore, you can look at special populations or special experiences like leadership training versus summer camp. You can position yourself in a way that will help people understand your value and why you're different from whatever the camp is down the road that's a little bit different. And they just play ping pong and play basketball all day, which is great too. So nothing wrong with that. But there's a reason why when somebody goes, hey, how come your program isn't, isn't like 10 cents like that one? And you can say, I actually had to go train as a wilderness educator for six months and I had to sleep in a shelter and I had to learn this. And then I also had to do early childhood education learning. And I had to learn about child psychology and I had to learn how to communicate and rites of passage and all that other stuff. And that's why my camp is not, you're not going to be stuck with a bunch of 22 year olds who are now going to be just taking care of your kids who are oblivious to those things. And for some parents, they'll go, I can't afford it. So I'm going to take them here. And I'm like, right on, go do it. Have fun. Good luck. I'm sure it'll be good. On the other side of it, there are parents that are like, hey, my kid's special. My kid's going through some stuff right now. Are you the place that's going to really help me? And you can create that impression by your website, by your Instagram, to let parents know when they get to your site or wherever you're at, wherever they find you, they want to know, are you the right person for them? Because they uh, are looking for a very specific thing. Man, I could talk for at least another hour with this, but I'm going to wrap this up and I'm just going to say, please understand how to solve a problem. What problem are you actually solving or what problems are you solving? Are you saving people time? Are you saving them money? Are you making their life easier, et cetera? The answer to most of these are is yes, you are doing something and I'm just going to tell you, if you're running a nature education program and you're taking people out in the woods, keeping them safe, teaching them things, and giving them incredible amounts of personal time, one-on-one -on -one time where you're fully present with them and communicating with them and spending time with them, that is incredibly valuable. And it's also very hard work. And I get it. And I'm just going to tell you, you have to value that. And the parents that really understand why, what you do and how valuable it is, they will get it and they will look at you and go, oh my God, thank you so much. I get what you did. Imagine if that parent had to take off for work for five days and then take their kids in the woods and teach them about stream biology or take them out and make a fire piston or <laughs> make a bow and arrow or go tracking, whatever. It would take them forever and they'd be like going, all right, I got to be really present with my kid and I got all these other things on my mind. So the fact is that you're doing an incredible job for them that they don't have the time to do and that, and they want that and you have to value that and you have to make sure that they understand that you know what you're doing and you know the value of it and you're actually planting seeds that are going to provide fruit and sustenance for that child and your and their family for a generation and you're willing to do it but you also need to make sure that you're going to be able to keep doing it and get time off and get a massage or go on vacation or whatever and if you can do that if you can understand your value and understand that you're not just childcare you're not just the lowest common denominator, but you're actually much higher up. You're actually more like a therapist rather than a babysitter. You're going to understand it better and you're going to then look at it and say, what should my compensation be? And start figuring it out from there. And once you start understanding that, then your marketing changes, your messaging changes, 
and your customer base will start to shift to get it. And when the people that want what you offer get it, they are going to be super pumped that you're there and they will, they, you'll know, it'll be a match and you're going to be like, wow, this is awesome. So a lot more to talk about. We could talk a lot about messaging and all that, all those other things. But again, go to my website, hotforesteducator.com. Check it out. I appreciate you listening to all of this. I hope that you got something useful from this and that you are uh, doing the work you're doing and finding a way to keep doing it and to do it better and to do it where you can feel less stress and you can keep making a difference and also take care of yourself and your family and everything. Thank you and keep doing what you're doing. We need you and I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.